I'm Luke Simmons. And I am Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to the King and Culture podcast. Uh, it is good to uh, have a guest with us today, a familiar guest if you've listened to us for a while, Matthew Brazelton. Hey, hey. The, uh, the super pastor of Ultimate Frisbee and... Uh, and <laughs> yeah. Raising farm animals and other things. Thank you. Um, he but, uh, is the Queen Creek Dosaki's man. <laughs> <laughs> he can play instruments. He can raise animals. He can balance spreadsheets. And he's six foot five. Uh, yeah, he is. He is the way that my children gauge how tall other people are. He drives a monster. I say, he drives a monster. Is that truck. person taller than Mister Basilton? <laughs> Oh man, he's the standard. He's like the cubit for for <laughs> for tall people. So anyway, so Matthew is here today as a follow up to our Ask Anything Sunday, which we did the first Sunday of the year, actually the first day of the year this year, and we had more questions than we could answer that were asked that day, and um, so we took what was left over of that, and Matthew actually went through them and figured out questions he wants to ask more of. So. We are not going to get to all the questions that were submitted, but we're going to try to get to some more. We'll link to the um, the services in the description of this episode if you want to go back, if you didn't get a chance to listen to those. It seems like a lot of times we get, you know, questions in real similar categories, but uh, hopefully we'll go on a little bit of an adventure here today, Matthew. Yeah. We're glad that you're with us. Yeah, yeah. No, this is great. It's so fun to hear what folks in our congregation are thinking about and wondering about. And so I tried to pick uh, just kind of a sampling of stuff that would give us an opportunity to speak to a broad range of topics here. But um, yeah, so let's just dive in. The first category is eschatology revelation. So um, two questions on this one. First one, do you think when Israel became a nation in 1948, that started the clock towards Jesus' return? It's a good question. Uh, the short answer is no. I think that 1948 has no eschatological significance whatsoever. I think, so eschatology means end times or eschaton, the end. And so it's the study of the end. Uh, I think it's a, I know why people think that. And a lot has to do with like the way left behind has shaped our imagination or thought process. I'd say that Israel, as far as the word is concerned, biblically speaking, did not become a nation in 1948. Israel has been a people ever since Abraham and has not ceased to exist. And so there is no culminating end times effect. I, if anything, I think that the nation of Israel having the being called Israel is frankly confusing, potentially plagiaristic because mm. some nation state calling itself the people of God is a huge problem for me. I think that uh, modern, uh, even like national politics misunderstands even like the way that the people in the old Testament were functioning. I also think that's a misunderstanding of the way that Israel and the church are connected. So yeah, uh, when we think about, Israel being God's called out people regularly in the Old Testament, especially in the Greek version, it's called the assembly or the eclectos mm. or the ecclesia, or the called out ones. So I've missed those two words, ecclesias, uh, assembly, eclectos, the called out ones. In the Greek terms, are the same terms that are applied to the church in the New Testament. Um, also, I think it's a misunderstanding of the way that Israel continues to function. So I would say that Abraham has one offspring. So we see this in Galatians chapter 3, yeah. that there is one offspring that belongs to Abraham, um, and that one offspring is the faithful person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so ultimately, thinking about Israel eventually has one faithful remnant, which is Jesus, and all those who are in Christ are therefore in Israel. And so it's not that the church replaces or supersedes Israel, but the church is the people of faith in Abraham. And so we are descendants of Abraham by faith, so the church is Israel. Uh, and you could even use those terms interchangeably, even possibly referring to Israel in the Old Testament as church. That's the way that the Greek translators and Septuagint did it. So so we were even part of the promise when God promised Abraham all this offspring, that his offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky or the sand. And the, it, that's that's part of, we're, we're part of that promise. Yeah. So we're not I'll, a separate I'll, I'll read Galatians 3. Uh, he says, um, Galatians 3.16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean, that the law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, no, it comes by a promise. So uh, for what God gave to Abraham by a promise. So what Paul's arguing here in Galatians 3 
is that the law, and here's he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant, or like the the nation of Israel, as we know it as like a formal national entity, was a parenthetical situation preparing for the time of Christ post-Exodus, but that the broader promise, the bigger promise, was that there be one offspring in Abraham by faith. And so uh, I think it's best to understand uh, the church's inheriting the promises and being part of promises and being um, a part of Abraham's people. So if I was going to say, who are Abraham's people? I'd say those who by faith are in Christ, who by faithfulness is the one offspring of Abraham. That's great. So in that sense, eschatologically speaking, the most significant, so even like this idea, so I it also when people say like, well, we're getting closer to closer to the return of Christ. I'm like that's literally how time works. You're always getting closer to the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think you can look at the news and decide that. I think that's just how time works. I think the most significant eschatological event we have is the resurrection of Christ, Amen. which uh, Joel chapter two talks about at the at the end times. There it just goes on to describe like there's darkness, there's locust, all this stuff. It's it's describing the very events of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and so we are in the end times, not because of 1948, but because the death and res- resurrection of Christ have inaugurated uh, the new the new heavens and the new earth, and we are uh, in this already not yet situation waiting for Christ's return which we will not know the day or the time. Yeah, I, the only thing I would add to it is like in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says in these last days there will be blah, 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 blah. And it's like he assumed he was in the final days. Yeah. Um, so the idea that there's any one event that we're waiting for that kicks off the final days, no, the event, as Seth said, already happened. It was the resurrection. And the Lord can return at any moment. I mean, that's the whole idea when Jesus says, you know, like a thief in the night, like yeah. you won't know what, when it's coming. Um the idea is not that we could line up, oh, these six things have to happen first. So, Yeah, I, and I would say Paul was not wrong when he believed he's in the last days. He was in the last days. Yeah. And I just think the last days means like the last chapter. It's just a very long last chapter. Yeah. You know, it's not like when we say last days, it means like in the last 30 days. It means like in the last type of days. Yeah. So the last type of days are these days in which Christ is reigning on high, but yet to have a second coming. Those are the last days, that whole chunk, that whole chapter, that whole type. So there are other types of days. We are now in the type of days called the last days. Nice. Cool. All right. So related to that, next question, will there be a literal rapture of the church to be followed by a seven-year tribulation period and then the second coming of Christ? Uh, no, I don't believe there will be. Uh, and and is that a uh, redemption like across the board? You have to believe that to be a member or is that just kind of your opinion? Um, that is... Uh that's my conviction, uh, my belief. Um, that's not something that's required in order to be a member. We don't have a specification in our doctrinal statement about a, a rapture or the timing of tribulation or um, even the sp- specifics around the millennium other than that Jesus is going to return. Um, yeah, I mean, when people talk about a rapture, what they're usually talking about is this kind of secret coming of Jesus, mm-hmm. that Jesus comes secretly, yeah. takes away his church, um, you know, either before or in the middle of or at the end of a, a season of intense suffering called the tribulation. Yeah. But this first coming of Jesus is secret. No one really knows what happened. All the people just were left behind. They, dis, you know, disappeared. And as Seth said earlier, you know, our view of end times theology has been so shaped by um, <laughs> the left behind books and movies and that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and then Jesus will return and, you know, everyone will know that he's coming. The, the problem is I just don't, um, in the passage in First Thessalonians 4, where it talks about um, believers being caught up together with the Lord in the air, there's nothing about that passage that seems secret. Um, right. You know, it's talking about the trumpets the trumpets, trumpets and the cry of command and the voice of the archangel. It seems like, like, dun, 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 like everyone knows this is happening. So... That's the main reason that I reject the idea of, of a kind of secret. It requires a, a little bit of a, some gymnastics around a kind of secret first coming with a big, bold second. Well, that's actually third coming of Jesus since he already came you know, before. Um, so that would be my hang up with the idea of the rapture. I don't remember the rest of the specifics around that question. But. I, yeah. One, one thing, too, I, I would add. So I wrote a paper called To Be or Not to Be Left Behind mm. uh, in seminary. Maybe we can link to it in the show notes. But one of the big things is you have like in Matthew 24, 37, 29, it says like, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. Uh, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. And there's like this, there's two men in the field, one will be taken away. And the question, but 
the Matthew account doesn't say which one will be taken away. It just mm. says one will be taken away. And the assumption in this kind of pre-tribulational rapture idea is that the righteous are taken away, whereas the sweep of the whole prophetic literature is that the unrighteous will be uprooted from the earth. Mm. They'll be taken away. Yeah. Even the Septuagint translation of Genesis 6-8 says that Noah was left behind. And so if it'll be like the days of Noah, then the righteous are the ones left behind. Wow. And so we should not want to be taken away because you're taken away to hell and judgment. Mm. Uh, it's not taken away to heaven uh, to be protected from judgment, but the, the unrighteous are uprooted from the land of the living, uh, taken away, and it's like the weeds are gathered up and burned in the fire, says Matthew 13. So will be the end of the age. It's a gathering up of the weeds. It's a taking away of the of the chaff, and, and so we should not want to be like, being left. Being left behind is a great thing. It's not a thing yeah. we should be worried about. So there's a, a sweet sister here in our church um, who I was interacting with with her about this over email and telling her, you know, I don't really believe that there is a rapture the way you're describing it. And she was saying, you know, you're going to really disappoint people when you get to Revelation because you got a lot of people who are experiencing a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty and a lot of hardship, and they want to get out of here. And the idea that they're going to maybe have to endure more suffering in a tribulation, like that just, people are not going to like that. And um, and I don't disagree with her about people's feelings about it. I, I don't necessarily feel beholden to how people are going to feel about it. I want to try to say what I think the Bible says. But I'm curious how you'd speak to that instinct, because I think that is some of the appeal of a rapture is like, gosh, this world is stinking broken. Let me just get out of here. Yeah. Um, how would you try to pastor someone who was feeling the disappointment of that? Yeah, I'll jump. I, I, I think... Um I mean, you're talking about issues of hope right now, and that's why it's so sensitive. When when you're going through a difficult time, the thing you cling to is hope. And I think sometimes our hope is just aimed too low. Our hope is just how do we get out of this physical reality with so much pain and, and kind of get into this spiritual place with no more pain. And God actually has a bigger hope for us, a greater hope. Actually, it's the hope that, that this physical reality, which is part of who we are, um, will be fully redeemed. Yeah. And when Christ returns, he will judge the earth. He will remove sin. Um, he'll redeem and restore. Um, he'll, can, he'll finish the work that he, he began on the cross. And so um, I, think, I think it's actually, rather than this being bad news, this is actually really good news. Because when we're experiencing pain and, and difficulty, we can actually look forward to a day when we'll live in bodies on a physical earth with people that we love with the Lord and, and it will all be like Eden again. Yeah. Although better perfected, you know, yeah, having I, gone I'd, through. I'd say also on tribulation that there is disagreement among, among people who don't necessarily believe in a, in the rapture of the righteous, but they leave in a rapture of the unrighteous, uh, the nature of the tribulation. Many would say we are, we have been in a tribulational season forever. Like it's never, it's not been pleasant to be a Christian except for maybe a decade here or there in world history. Well, and Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And I'm yeah. pretty sure that's the same word. It is, yeah. So is there like a, a final boss, extra bad tribulation? Many say yes. Is it like, hey, are the people in China experiencing tribulation right now? Is there a sense in which those who are on the margins and in the closet for their beliefs and tribulation, like there's a sense in which we're experiencing tribulation now. And so um, I do think that if there is a final and ultimate tribulation, it will not be a difference in in uh, kind will be a difference in degree. degree it's yeah. not going to be totally different than the oppression that many Christians experience now throughout the world. It might be escalated up, but it's not going to be like, oh, this is totally unlike the massacre of Christians in the second century. It'll be uh, pretty similar to that. And so I would say to those who are experiencing like disappointment at the fact there's an rapture, I'm like, you're already being crushed by the world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, like, uh, you're already enduring. Revelation talks about all the time, like, those who endure, like, those who overcome. You're already overcoming, you're already enduring. You can do more of what you're doing. And and you have it in you by the Spirit to be an overcomer. And I would encourage you to think along those lines. Josh Butler has a book called Skeletons in God's Closet. Where he talks about how um, many Christians want to get the hell off earth, meaning, like, get me the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah. And he says, actually, the biblical story is more about God getting the hell off of earth. So getting that which is hellish off of earth. Huh. It's the burning off of the impurity. It's the, yeah. uh, just like when Noah's flood came, it cleansed the world of unrighteousness. It mm. was a traumatic, mm. 
terrible event, but it cleansed the world of unrighteousness. And the second coming will be like the days of Noah, but with fire. The fire will come and burn off that which is unrighteous and, and gather it off. And it will be difficult and it will be terrible. And uh, N.T. Wright talked about how that fire is likely metaphorical for something worse than fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yet it will be purifying. And so I do think that main thing when people talk to me about the book of Revelation, I say, here's what I know for certain is you won't be disappointed <laughs> if you're in Christ. That's yeah. good. And, and I know that. And I, the details of that are mystery. I do think there's some mystery that we can see a little more clearly than other aspects of the mystery. But I do know you won't be disappointed. Cool. So lots more to say, more to come. Uh, stay tuned for our Revelation series later on this year. We're Should not going to get through very many questions at this rate. It's true. We'll try. I'm, this is my first time trying to moderate <laughs> something. I'm going to try no, to keep good. this moving. These are right. t- those are, I mean, that was worth the time we spent on Yeah, those are great questions. And we'd love to talk more if anyone wants to talk. So, All right, parenting. We're going to switch gears to oh, parenting baby. now. So <laughs> from the rapture to parenting. Uh, Sometimes in, parents of young kids wish, they, wish their they kids could, could get raptured yeah. and they could get left behind. It's, <laughs> date night lying. as rapture. <laughs> next blog post. All right, in light of Proverbs 22.6, what encouragement do you have for parents who have raised children in a home, uh, in a Christian home, but the child is rejecting the faith and their children do not show a desire to follow the Lord. So this is that train up a child in the way he should go kind of general. Is it a, is a specific promise? Is it a general principle? Um, train up the child in the way he should go in the end. He won't. Yeah. Somebody looking up. The yeah. Specific. It says even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Yeah. So folks, so the question is how do I handle it when yeah. my child has departed from it? Yeah. yeah. So, so a couple of things. One, the Proverbs are, generally true not universally true and they're not promises they're mm. proverbs so this is saying ordinarily speaking you lay foundation you build on it things go the certain way there's also discrepancy in the hebrew in tramp a child the way you should go that could be translated tramp a child according to their own way meaning like let a child grow up unpruned mm. and it will not depart from it so it's more of like a threat than a promise like if you let a child go up grow up undisciplined when they get older they'll be undisciplined that's mm. one way of rendering Proverbs 22.6. So it's less of a promise and more of a threat. Mm. Like if you don't discipline your child, when will they ever develop discipline? So train up a child or allow a child to be trained up according to their own desires. When they're old, they'll not depart. It's not a good deal. Do you think that's a good reading of it? It's a possible reading of it. Okay. <laughs> My Hebrew professor at seminary thought that was the right reading. Okay. Like more about. So so it's like that might be what it means. It might yeah. not. The function- but it's also not an, obs- an obscure understanding yeah. of that. Yeah, the function is the time. same. Like, discipline your child, correct them, train them up, build them up, and when they go, when they're older, it'll either, like, it's connected to or correlated with the parental input. And so, one's more positive, do the right things, and they might do the right things. One's more negative, do the wrong things, and they'll keep doing the wrong things. Yeah. So, so what we're saying is... Both of which are not universally true, though they may be generally true. Yeah. And so, the question again... So, yeah. So, so the question is, how would you encourage a parent who is feeling disappointed. Like I try to li- raise my kid in a Christian home. They're not walking with the Lord. I kind of feel a little let down here. How would you encourage them? So yeah. one of the things you'd say yeah. is good news. The Bible didn't let you down because maybe that wasn't a one for one promise, but more of a general uh-huh. principle. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, uh, you know, my kids are still in the home. Uh, some of them seem to have more faith than others. It, mm. Who knows where things will be in 20, 30 years. So, um, you know, so I, I have some hesitancy and probably all of us do. None of us have kids that are out, out of the home yet. So um, I feel like even answering it a bit with trepidation, but, but I've, I have done this as I've pastored yeah. people in these situations. And, um, you know, I think that really the disappointment is moreover, my child's not walking with the Lord. Yeah, you know, um, and I would just say, kind of along the lines of what was just said. Well, um, if there are areas that you feel like you messed up, that yeah. you need to take responsibility for and apologize for and own, then do that. But but this verse wasn't a promise. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you screwed up. Um, you know, I think that even the Book of Job tells us that you know there are things that we don't often understand. Yeah. I mean, Job was totally righteous um, and blameless, and you had these friends trying to make a, well, if A, then B equals, you know, they were trying to make this 
mathematical calculation of, well, this necessarily led to that. And, and similarly, that's not the case. So I would just say, you know, if you have things to own, own it. Um, but mostly, man, I feel sorry for you and sad for you. And, and I want to join you in praying that God would open your kids' hearts and yeah. give them a desire for you. And I think one of the path, one of the paths toward that might be a parent who's able and willing to recognize some areas where there might've been some shortcoming, you know, um, I'm not saying that's always the case, but you know, a lot of times kids that grow up in the church are, um, you know, part of what hurts them is feeling like they were in this environment where they were expected to be perfect, but they saw all the imperfection around them Yeah, and they kind of can't really stomach the incongruity. Mm. And so I'd say, you know, to whatever degree as parents we're responsible for, um, you know, showing one thing publicly, but kind of being a different way privately, you know, whether our children are believers or not, we should probably take ownership for that and, and patch that up if we can. But yeah, cool. Would you guys add anything to that? I, I think I'd just say, um, every parent I've met and talked with is kind of in a different situation. So it's hard to make a universal kind of encouragement, but, uh, I think I've met people that feel like their parenting actually has more power than it does as it relates to how their kids um, end up. And and then I think there are people who really underestimate the value of their parenting and, and the, their presence in the home. And so I'd love to have more of an in-depth conversation and try to, to kind of work through some of maybe those issues. I, our theology, I'd say this, our theology doesn't change when we become parents. We still believe it's the Lord that opens hearts and we still believe that we're totally dependent on his spirit to do that work. And so the work of a parent is, is first and foremost the work of prayer because you're, you're desiring and working towards something you cannot do without the spirit's work. Yeah. Right. And the spirit works through your, your faults as much as he works through your successes. So when you talk about repentance, that's a huge part of how God moves in relationships is through repenting Christians, not just righteous, perfect Christians. Yeah. Um, which is not a thing. So, um, those are some thoughts. All right, moving on. Um, Again, these are all over the spectrum, so forgive the whiplash here. Uh, evangelicals find a basis for gender and sex in biological markers. How do you square this with a God who, at least as Father and Spirit, identifies as male but possesses none of the biological traits? Yeah, that's a great question. Wow, that's thoughtful. Yeah, I'd, first of all, I'd say that um, God doesn't identify as male, so that's nowhere in the in the scriptures. Um, Father is a metaphor, even if it's a primary metaphor by which we access the incomprehensible. Uh, the name of the Lord, the Tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, is his name. Mm. He is spirit. He is not identified as biological male or female. He's incorporeal. He's non-physical. He is spirit. God is spirit. He's not a spirit. He is spirit. And so uh, what we need, because God also refers to himself in maternal metaphors, mm -hmm. Like a mother nursing his child, I am, and so the hen gathering her chicks or whatever. Yeah, and so while father may be a primary metaphor, it's not identification with maleness. Christ, on the other hand, um, when he takes on flesh before the incarnation, he is the logos. He is the eternal Son. Even the eternal Son is not describing him as male; it's describing him as um, heir. You know, the firstborn of creation. That he's mm. he is generate of the Father eternally, so he's uh, begotten. I mean, in that sense, he is offspring, but sonship would have been understood as like a positional reality. But he he is male at the incarnation. He is a boy. He has male chromosomes, male genitalia. And so he's not identifying um, as a boy in contrast with his biological sex, but in congruence with it. Uh, so, and part of the reason we understand, so even, even using the word phrase, God identifies himself as father, um, that's kind of a misunderstanding, and it's uh, using the language of identification is kind of projecting current terms. It's a, yeah. a, a historical use that he's choosing a metaphor by which we can access the incomprehensible. Different than current like trans issues where someone is saying like my sex is lying about my identity or my sense of self or my body's misrepresenting who I am or my mind is incongruent with my body. The father's not saying that he's. Uh, describing himself as paternal. And so it's also not in, uh, incorrect for like males from time to time to identify their maternal aspects, uh, you know, like nurturing um, mm -hmm. 
hospitality. Mm-hmm. Our our tradition understood as maternal, and so it's not wrong for someone who's very confident in their maleness to say from time to time they have maternal moments. Great. Without saying I am a mother, I can say there are maternal aspects of my relationship with various people. Well said. All right, moving on. Is capital punishment biblical? We're talking about the death penalty today. Um, so is the United States or the state of Arizona or the state of Texas or the state of Florida or whatever having uh, capital punishment, is that a biblical thing? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, just the question, is it biblical? What does that mean? Well, we have examples of capital punishment in the Bible, but does that mean that it's still a good idea today? I think is what the question is asking. The first thing I'd say is it is capital punishment as a concept is certainly biblical. It's was in Genesis 9, 6, we said, whoever sheds blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God has made man his own image, that there is a blood for blood, life for life principle. Given in Genesis 9, 6, uh, most of the people nowadays who are against capital punishment are not against it on like an a priori or ontological basis, meaning um, nobody should avenge the evildoer. Usually it's on the basis of like the pragmatics of the, f- the faults or the, f- the fractures or even like the possibility of substantial error in the current legal system. Yeah, um, I'm not really in a position to ar- speak in defense of or... Uh, that position because I don't really understand the, the full crime and punishment realities like of, of the criminal justice system. I do think that Romans 13 describes um, God having given the sword to the government to avenge and to punish evildoers. Mm-hmm. The exact nature of that punishment, um, the fact that it's a sword sounds like it's a lethal threat or at least threat of lethal violence. Uh, I do think that we have so many examples of people being wrongfully put to death yeah. That the question, then you're kind of going the numbers game. Was well, it need to be right 99% of the time or 90% of the time or 99.999% of the time? Right. And so like human error in the process of justice is inevitable. Justice is more of a pursuit than a position. Uh, so I'm personally conflicted about it. Biblically speaking, I think the Bible is very pro uh, the, the government bearing the right to shed blood for blood. Um, how that plays out from a legal criminal justice perspective is... Into very debatable, especially like in our increasingly complex society. I don't know cool. what you guys think. We've never talked about that, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think we ever really have. I mean, I, yeah, I, to me, this feels like an open-handed yep. issue. Like, very. I don't think, uh, I don't think there's a lot of value in having an overly hard stance on it. I mean, I, I think there are good faith Christians who would argue that it's totally fine on the basis of everything Seth just said, and who would say that um, it shouldn't be something we root for. Right. or want because you know jesus has this turn the other cheek kind of ethic um this ethic of forgiveness and um you know that sort of a thing so i think people make good arguments on both of those sides but um there's definitely a biblical case to be made for capital punishment um and uh you know so yeah yeah i feel like i uh, as i get older and i don't know if age is the determining factor but i feel like i'm less uh, I, I, I have a lot more caution as I walk into this topic. I, I, it feels like Seth mentioned there's, there've, there've been a lot of documented cases of misses on this. And yeah. My, my hesitations now are more related to that kind of like yeah. he said, than they are to the, yeah. the Bible is like, you know, can the state and should the state, is it there for the sword? Sure. Um, do we have a great deal of confidence in the holiness and the godliness of the state to do that with justice yeah. and righteousness? I do not. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess the only thing I'd caution against really on this is just reaching back into the old Testament law for the nation of Israel and, and using that as a prescriptive law for how the United States or any other nation should govern right now. It, it, those are very different things in very different contexts. And we should understand kind of our calling to be this, this kingdom of God people is separate and distinct from our calling as, you know, or, or our identity as, as Americans or whatever nationality you might. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, this could take us down a rabbit trail. It is yeah. interesting to me how, um, you know, all sides of every political debate use the Old Testament law for or against their <laughs> particular thing, right? You know, like if you really want to have more immigration reform, you emphasize how the Old Testament law talks about welcoming the sojourner and the you know, if you really want there to be, you know, stronger law and order, you talk about how the Old Testament, you know, is okay with and encourages 
capital punishment, right? So everybody is often <laughs> weaponizing the Bible yeah. and leveraging it for whatever they actually care about. Um, and and it does get dicey because in many of those cases, when you're talking about the Hebrew scriptures, you're talking about the nation of Israel, which was a theocracy, which was a totally different kind of government than what we have. So, yeah, you know, there's some warnings. Yep. Be careful there. All right. Next question. Two fairly consistent messages I hear from Christian teachers. The one is God loves you, smiles at you, and there's nothing you need to do to earn his love. So stop trying to earn his love. The second message I hear is faithfulness and obedience to God's law are for your benefit and please him. We are responsible for our growth. Stop blaming others for your lack of spiritual growth. And so they're asking, could you flesh out, work out your salvation with fear and trembling alongside this idea of God's um, unmerited favor and his pleasure in you? (laughs) That's great. Those are probably two consistent messages they hear from us. Yeah. So <laughs> teachers out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah. the ones I listen to most Sunday. <laughs> yeah. I I mean I think if you consider the metaphor of like marriage, if we're his bride mm. and he's our groom. Like I think about my like my wife took vows to me. Like it my her affection for me is like bound up. I don't feel like her love for me is at risk. Mm. At the same time, like nurturing that affection and being committed to it is a really good thing. And so it's not like uh, she's looking at me saying, take me on dates or I'll stop loving you. Uh, mm-hmm. But there is like a, like nurturing the mutual enjoyment is part of that. The only difference, I mean, the not the only difference, the gigantic, huge difference between the relationship with me and my wife and me and God is God is God. And his instruction to me, his fatherly instruction is in many ways like this creational blueprint. Like he's, giving me guidance on how to live in congruence to live with the grain of creation. He's not arbitrarily just picking things off and saying yes on this, no on this, thumbs up, thumbs down. He's, he's giving us like counsel on how to best function within the bounds of creation. And so his, his law to us and so careful obedience to it, while it can't earn any of his affection, it does serve our flourishing and does like nurture my affection for him in the relationship as I, as I walk with him and, and pursue him, uh, my affection for him grows. Like we, we know what we're looking for. And so I think that those two things are, are key. Yeah. Yeah. Some years ago I was in a, I, Molly and I had a small group that met at our house and uh, we spent, I don't know, four or five, six weeks going through what, you know, shorthand we might call gospel centrality. This idea that you know, even though you're far more sinful than you ever dared believe, you're also far more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. You know, Tim Keller has been foundational for us in our understanding of that, this idea that really articulating the first part of that question, that, you know, there's nothing that you could do that would make God love you less. There's nothing you could do that would make God love you more, right? And people in this group, they were experiencing freedom and, oh, wow, God likes me. <laughs> and man, I like, I've always been so af- afraid of him, but not like in a reverence way, but more like in a eh, cowering way. And now I feel like this is freedom and this is joy. And then uh, the next week we re- read an article by Wayne Grudem called Pleasing God by Our Obedience where he goes through, it's probably 20 pages or so long. Uh, if, there's a, if I can find a way to link to it, we will. And, um, you know, and he explains all these passages that talk about how what we do as Christians actually pleases God. And, it, you know, it was whiplash for the people in this group. They were like, man, I am, which is it? You know, it's kind of this yeah. question. Like, yeah. so does God really like me or is it, do I have to please him? Like, which is it? And, and it was so interesting as we, as we processed it together, um, you know, everybody in the group was really struggling with this, like, tension, um, except one person, and that was my wife, Molly. And I said, babe, you don't seem like this is, this doesn't seem like it's really bothering you that much, which in general, if you know Molly's like, yeah, there's not a lot that bothers her. But, <laughs> but I said, you know, why do you think that is? And she said, well, I think it's because I had a dad who I always knew was 100% for me. And he had high standards for me and Praise for God. us. That's know, so cool. Like, I never thought I was trying to earn his love, but also, you know, he'd drop us off and go, remember, you're representing the Bush family, you know? And so I just, those two things don't feel opposite to me. They feel like part of what it is to have a good dad. And it was interesting as we went around and we were like, how many of you in this group had that experience? 
it was not me, not me, not me, not me, not me, not me. And so that just to me was such a revelation related to this question is that, you know, if you have a good heavenly father, I mean, some of what it says in like the first verse that popped in my mind was Titus 2.14, where it talks about the blessing, uh, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, right? Just built in to, you know, I love you, not because of you, and I'm going to make you passionate to do good things and to please me. And so those things are not at odds. Um, they don't need to be reconciled because they're friends um, already. And so yeah, that, um, that text right before the one he just read says that grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. And so we don't renounce godliness in order to receive grace, but the grace of God actually functions to train us. Yeah. Like the, that's building us up. So there's no risk. This questioner doesn't have to worry about believing too much that God's pleased in them and loves them, that that actually might be the path to obedience rather yes. than like a, like a license to. to yeah. Learn. Well, I think w- the other thing that's behind this question is that a lot of us tend to view God in strictly legal terms. Mm. So what do I have to do to be off the hook? Yeah. Whew, okay. My sin's forgiven. My record's clean. He's pleased with me. Like he's not going to count against me. Whew, done. But, but that's not, I mean, that is a significant picture, right? A lot of the Apostle Paul's writings describe the kind of legal dynamics of our relationship yeah. with God. Justification is a legal kind of understanding, right? There's lots of courtroom imagery. But if that's the only paradigm we have for understanding our relationship with God, we're going to end up with a lot of confusion around this. Whereas if you go, no, God is a, you know, he is a person. Jesus is revealed as a person, right? When the grace of God appears to train us for godliness, it isn't grace somehow in a concept it's grace in a person right and so if it's a relationship with god then it's easier to go okay he totally loves me no matter what this relationship is not conditional on me and also it brings a smile to god's face when i trust him yeah (laughs) and when i when i do what he says and when i uh, resist sin and you know like of course the lord loves that just like any good parent you know any good parent loves their kid no matter what and is grieved when they disobey and delighted when they when they flourish and obey yeah. so but the heart of it they want to have a relationship with their kid right so they're doing all that they can do to have a thriving healthy relationship with them that's great all right moving on uh how do you live a purposeful life as a believer so it's a question about purpose what am i what am i here for what am i doing i'm a christian how should that inform the trajectory of my life. I kind of imagine this coming from a younger questioner, Yeah, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I'll go first and just say, I don't know how helpful my answer will be because I just, I'm wired this way. Like I'm looking for purpose. Like I'm driven. I'm, you know, like it's not hard for, I, I'm not aimless very often. I'm not, you know, eh, whatever that, you know, like I, so I don't know, like I would be finding my purpose in something else if it wasn't, the Lord, I think on the basis of just my personality and wiring. So I'm not sure how exactly I would tell someone who was struggling to find their purpose, you know, to do it. Maybe another do you have way any insight there. Or, yeah. Go ahead. Maybe another way to think of it is what matters, like what really matters. I'm going to live a life. I'm going to do something with it. I'd like to do something that matters. Yeah. I, I would look at the two lenses. One is like creational one is stewardship. So I think looking at creation, you see five big aspects of what it means to be human. And I think that our purpose is bound up in our created intent. And that's more of a general purpose, what it means to be human. So you see this idea of subduing and having dominion, which is culture making. That's unfolding the latent goodness within creation, uh, which is uh, producing. So if you think about uh, creation as like uh, these fivefold things, so you have subduing dominion, which is like production. Then you have like male and female, which is like romance and reproduction. Um, Then you have like being fruitful and multiplying, which is parenting and discipleship. Um, then you also have working and keeping, which is like tending to the Lord's presence in a place or among a people. Um, these like big aspects. Is that four? I, I combined focal okay. multiply and, and, uh, male and female, but there's okay. four or five and they go together. So generally speaking, there's production, there's reproduction, there's passing on of the faith mm. and there's tending to spiritual things. And so I think that those kind of big four things and you could break it off into five if you want to include romance as a separate category. Those are part of how God designed all humans. And so most humans who tend to have, quote, good mental health, unquote, 
are somehow experiencing up and to the right in one of those five categories. People who are having a difficult time tend to experience difficulty there. It's like the creational breadth. Um, what, the- what I love about that framework that you just gave, Seth, is it's rather than like going out and finding like a purpose, like creating a purpose. I feel like this is some of the tension of, of our current dynamic is everyone feels a pressure to, I have to go find a purpose. And what you're saying is God has made you already with a purpose. Yes. So rather than finding it out there somewhere, why don't you find it in the fabric of creation and live in line with that fabric? Well, yeah, and I think the most compelling, dignifying, significant aspects of our purpose are things we all have in common. Like the, the human task is tremendous and substantial to be made in God's image and likeness. Like we are called to represent him in all these different ways, and those are the major ways. And so I think one of the problems with our current culture is we are trying to find our purpose as distinct from other people's purpose. Mm. rather than finding like our shared human vocation as being significant. The second layer of that is our unique purpose, which I do think I would use the term stewardship, which is play the cards you're dealt, yeah. which is what access to like capital do you have, either like creative or financial or human? Uh, what passions and skills do you have that you can leverage? What can you be, de- how can you develop yourself? How can you invest in yourself? Um, how can you make yourself more valuable? And that's not just economic terms, but also uh, how can I contribute the most to... Like useful. Yeah, useful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and in our current situation, that is, in unfortunately, absolutely bound up with how much money can I make because uh, salaries tend to be the, the way that society has valued certain yeah. labor or other not certain labor, and that's a mix of good and sinful, the way that we put value on labor. Um, but I think thinking about passion, skills, talents, how can I develop them and leverage them? How can I monetize them? How can I contribute with them? Uh, that's more specific under the headline of um, subdue and have dominion is how do I find that? Like I think playing the cards you're dealt is the is the big deal. And I think that like too much is given, much is expected. A lot of people are dealt, you know, four aces and a jack and you better do a lot with it. And other people are uh, dealt less good cards. Yeah. And it's more difficult to figure out what that exactly looks like. And so rather than uh, measuring yourself against other people, uh, we want to ask the question, how have I stewarded what God has given me? Because other people have, if you're born into a child of a billionaire with access to all of the world's possibilities, you better know that God expects a lot of you. And if you're comparing yourself to a kid who was born with that much opportunity, you're going to be very disappointed <laughs> in, yeah. in how much sure. value you're going to generate. So play the cards you dealt. Yeah, I think this is not only a question that young people wrestle with, but around middle age, this is a question that I've asked myself, and I think a lot of my peers have asked. And um, recently, we we sing this song at either the beginning or the end of every year. It's a song by uh, Mars Hill Music called All Glory Be to Christ, and it really ministered to my heart this year when we sang it. And I just want to read the first verse. It says, Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive, unless the Lord does raise the house in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life, a mist that vanishes at dawn, all glory be to Christ. And it just laser focused me again on what I know is true, which is it's the glory of God that endures. Like this is what matters. So the purpose behind whatever secondary purpose you're pursuing is the glory of Christ. Um, And so if that's your prayer and that's your intention and that's your goal, then you you can do whatever it is that you want to do yeah. and do it to the glory of God. Um, it, Cause that's all it, when it's all said, no one's going to remember you in a couple of generations. No one's going to remember me, but, but the, Jesus will, he will be remembered and what is done for him will be um, honored and appreciated and remembered. And we'll get to participate in that forever after when, when he raises the dead and we live to them forever. So all glory be to Christ. Amen. All right. Uh, next question. How do I handle a workplace that is increasingly pushing worldly cultural norms? Shrewdly. Yeah. I, one of the things Jesus says is to be shrewd as serpents is, and innocent as doves. I think there's an aspect uh, like we that we can learn from how we image God. So this is how God reveals himself to us. He's always revealing himself truly. Uh, but he's not always revealing himself fully. I mm. do think there's an aspect of wisdom there mm. that we don't want to lie. We don't want to misrepresent ourselves. We don't want to mislead. But choosing, th- this is tr- how every relationship works, right? Like 
um, the only I'm trying to always be fully and truly known by my wife, but I'm not always trying to be fully and truly known by everybody all the time. Mm-hmm. Like I have friends, like I use a, in our friendship episode, we talked about having five poker cards and how everyone needs to see truly one card, but I'm not showing everyone three cards or four cards or five cards. I think it's true in the workplace. I think if Christians feel the pressure to like make every single one of their views known all the time, unstrategically, not prayerfully, just blasting it. Yeah. That's not shrewd. So I think we need to be truthful, um, but prayerful and strategic in the way that we let ourselves be known fully in varying degrees. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I agree. Um, the only thing I maybe would add is, as I talk to a lot of uh, Christians in the workplace and it's been a long time since I've been in the corporate space. Mm-hmm. I was at one point, but I'm not right now. I do think that, um, and I understand the reasons why, but I do think that some people, uh, are less public than they could be. Some Christians are less public about their faith than they could be. You know, I think about, you know, I've had conversations with teachers who will say, you know, I can't mention anything about God. And I go like, well, maybe. I mean, I, I actually bet if you had a kid who was going through a real hard time, you could pray for them. Or you could say, hey, I'd like to pray for you when I get home. Could I pray for you? And I think there's such a fear of, uh, you know, that's not allowed. I can't do any of that. I, you know, I, I just wonder, and I think especially if you're a person of character and you're a person that is a good employee and you do a good job and you work hard and you're known and loved because of your character and the way you handle yourself, I think it buys you a little more opportunity to be public about your faith than some Christians might think. Um, but I but I would agree with Seth that if you're just going to be kind of the loud squeaky wheel all the time about your, you know, about whatever, it probably isn't going to go well for you. Yeah, there's an aspect of no risk, no reward. That I think we need to understand. And uh, yeah, this is a growing area of tension. I think we need a lot of grace. I think we need to give each other a lot of grace. I think we need to lean into the spirit's convictions in each individual person because w- different people may come to different conclusions on how to handle this. Yeah, to Luke's point too, I would. I think that pastors might be the least helpful on this question. That's yeah. a great point. Like I think talking to other people in corporate environments who are unashamed of the gospel and going, how does this play out? What does it look like in your life? Because um, it's very, like, it really benefits me in every single way to be very public about my faith and my role. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And so I, yeah. I think that I don't have to feel that tension. So I, I would encourage you to talk to maybe some non-pastors who are, who are wise, like even some of our elders at our church who their, their vocation's not exactly bound up with it like we are. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Uh, how do you stay friends with non-believers without letting your faith suffer as a young adult? So, young adult, friends with non-believers, feelings, maybe some tension morally in different situations or something of that nature. I'm reading between the lines on that. I think you have to be very mindful of the ways in which you might be likely to be led astray. Yeah. I think... I think not everyone's tempted to drunkenness. Not everyone's tempted tempted to sexual morality. Not everyone's tempted to develop a sailor's mouth. Not everyone's tempted to uh, steal money or steal stuff from Walgreens. I don't know. Like every, and so um, if you find yourself like, man, whenever I hang out with my non-Christian friends, I just get super drunk. Then I'd say, well, then you lack the maturity to have those friends. You need to like get some distance, get a spine, and then be their friends. Uh, you need to like develop some conviction and resolve, and then you can end. So I do think there's a little bit of a walk before you run in some of this stuff. There's even, like, a reality. Like, when I, when I was in high school, my dad would say, who are you hanging out with? And if I was hanging out with one of two kids, it was, all right, see you when I see you. And if it was other kids, he's like, see you at 10 p.m. <laughs> because huh. I think he was mindful of, I trust you to make good choices with those group of friends until 10 p.m. Mm. But with that kid whose parents work for Campus Crusade and those that kid who lives down the street and who's, Parents are a little uptight. You can hang out with them whenever you want. And I was like, well, I don't even want to hang out with them. Past you know, that was kind of yeah. part of the point. And so I think there's a know thyself yep. in this question. And, and so much of that is with prayer and honesty and feedback. I think being able to have Christian friends yes. who you're better friends with than the non-Christian friends that can give you honest feedback. Of or like, can go with you into those settings. Yeah. Like there's accountability in that. And having people that are observing you in various environments and seasons is a huge part of that. And we're the easiest person to lie to is yourself about stuff sometimes. And so being able to walk that line with someone and ask for honest feedback. And when your friend gives you honest feedback, not going like, stop judging me, but going, thank you for helping me be yeah. more faithful. Well, I think inviting some accountability 
with some of your Christian friends as you engage with your non-Christian friends to go, hey, you know, I'm going to hang out with these folks. You know, in the past, this is some of what we've done. Hey, will you, will you ask me about it, you know, tomorrow? Will you follow really up good. with me? That's really Because I do think that, I mean, the, I, I love the question in saying, like, I want to keep relationship with these folks. Yeah. Because the reality is once those relationships stop, it is so easy to get insulated, you know, and all of a sudden yes. all your relationships are at church and all your relationships are in your family. And, um, so I, so I do think like do whatever work you can to maintain those relationships. And at the same time, like Seth said, know yourself. That's great. All right. What advice would you give those who are looking to ensure longevity in serving and loving the church? Don't want to get burnt out and bored of the church or disappointed in the church. Yeah, two things come to mind. One is seasonally serve in areas outside your passion, but long-term serve in areas within your passion and gifting. I think, it's, I think it's good to learn the discipline of service that every now and then I do stuff that I'm unthankful for and that I don't totally love to do just because I want my heart to learn to serve. But I think that's not the long-term play. I think long-term finding a lane to run in that you love to run in is like the best fit. That's one. And two, I'd say, is maintain the discipline of Sabbath. Sabbath requires discipline. It requires saying no a ton. It requires the capacity to disappoint people. And I've not met someone who's serving in an area of their passion and maintains a Sabbath who's burnt out. That doesn't mean that it doesn't, don't exist. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I would say another um, another thing might be get get just some passing familiarity with church history. You know, there's a book by Bruce Shelley called uh, Church History in Plain Language. That's a long book, but it's easy. It's not a hard re- book to read. Because I do think um, a lot of our like, oh my gosh, I just can't believe that the church would ever, you know, once you have a little bit of church history, you go, oh, well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> you know, so I, I think that helps it because a lot of the... Um, a lot of the inability to last comes from unrealistic expectations that couldn't possibly get met. And yeah. so I think church history would help you understand that a little bit better, but, but I'd mostly agree, like have good rhythms, have good Sabbath. I, I do think the, um, figuring out where there is been hurt that can be repaired and do the work to repair it, whether you're on the causing end of that hurt or on the receiving end of that hurt. Um, and, uh, and then I think leaning, I mean, not to, sound overly just of course a pastor's gonna say this but leaning close to jesus because he loves his church and i think you you can't dig deep into the scripture and feel like the church is just me like you have to care about it yeah that's good i think avoiding us versus them kind of thinking of the church is a them not an us i think that's problematic i also think just understanding the the value of the family metaphor which god gives us like we're brothers and sisters so even when we upset one another, we don't walk away from our family. Um, we lean in, we, we submit to the order and structure God's put in place. All those things are, are helpful as well. But um, yeah, uh, and I think the last thing I'd say is just praying for whatever rubs you the wrong way, pray for that. Like pr- pray for the people, pray for the ministry decisions, pray for God's blessing um, in those areas where, where, where you'd be inclined to actually root for it to go poorly, pray yeah. for it to go well. Well, maybe along the lines, even of understanding church history is understand some of the differences in churches. Like, I mean, there's churches that are really healthy, vibrant, uh, faithful communities that in terms of style and feel and dynamic and culture just might be completely different than what you've ever seen or understood. Yeah. And so I think to get a taste of the breadth of the body of Christ actually helps your affection for it grow. That's good. All right. What primarily, speaking of church, what primarily shapes our order, uh, the order of our worship services? So the things we do when we gather together corporately on Sunday, what are the primary shapers of, of that? That sounds like a great question for the primary shaper of that, Matthew Brown. Hey, great. I'm glad <laughs> I asked myself this question. Um, well, yeah. I don't know that you're the primary no, shaper, no. but you have been over the years at different points, a significant shaper of our services. Yeah. Yeah. I, there's a, there's a, there's a lot to, to say here. I think the, the biggest concept that, that I try to keep front of mind is that um, the services are formative. They're designed to form us, not just inform us. So um, it's an experience that you enter into and you participate in, and hopefully you leave different than you came in. And so um, we're trying to create a, 
a, a cultural, a culturally appropriate, sensitive language that, that speaks to the majority of people who would come in these doors. So we, we are um, right on the border of Queen Creek and Mesa, a very conservative place. Um, we, you know, music is a cultural context. Um, design is a cultural context. Um, you know, lights and video and all kinds of things are these cultural calls that as a missionary to this place, we're trying to think missionally what will connect to the people and form them um, more into the image of Christ. So I, I kind of think of like our job as pastors is to build a bridge to the people God's sending us to and then and then welcome them across it. So there's one part that's um, we're trying to uh, create an ease of experience for people where we're meeting them where they are. And then there's another part where actually we're trying to move them, which is not easy. That's actually injecting tension. Yeah, so, so, so but a lot of that stuff you could have any order of service and you'd be mindful of that, right? You'd be mindful of that as you pick songs. You'd be yeah. mindful of that as you did announcements and figured out what graphics to put on a screen, you know, as you preached a sermon. But specifically on the order, because um, we mess up the order all the time. Not mess up. We mess with the order all the time, right? Okay, sometimes sure. we do a bunch of songs and then we take communion and then we do a sermon and then it's over. And sometimes we do a couple songs and do a sermon and then communion. And then, you know, we're about to, as of this recording, maybe by the time this even comes out, we're going to start having a regular part of our services be to recite the Nicene Creed together. You know, that's going to be a new thing. You know, there's definitely people who have like a, Hey, formation is a key part of these services and they would go, Hey, it needs to start with a call to worship and then it needs to be a confession of sin and there needs to be an assurance of grace. And there's this whole liturgy, that is like assumed to be formative. Um, so anyway, so how everything you're saying, I, like I'm on with it. How does yeah. that help? Like, how do you decide, well, we're going to sing this many songs and then do this. And it feels, it feels like there are, are four ingredients that we're always trying to get balanced. Right. Ingredient one is preaching a huge part of how even like Matthew and Stephen or the other worship leader will pick songs is, looking at the text that we preached, yeah, meditating on it, trying to connect the songs to the sermon, either like implicitly or explicitly. So there's preaching, then there's praising. How are we going to like help people arrive at a point of awareness yep. of God's presence and actually interact with him? We're not mm-hmm. just singing songs. We're praising God. You know. Then there's like sacraments. How are we going to uh, uh, faithfully observe the sacraments? And the fourth ingredient is hospitality. Mm-hmm like welcoming people in, being mindful of attention spans, stretching attention spans. So it's even like, uh, uh, and I think those like four pieces uh-huh. shift based on like the prayerful and communal experience of yeah. people. So I think we like sit with that tension and from time to time we, like we did communion after the preaching when we preached the first, or we did communion before the preaching, we preached the first and second Samuel because a little bit like, hey, let's try to, meet with Jesus and then see ourselves as Christians before we preach this Old Testament text. Yeah. And we flipped it back. So I do think there's... Is there kind of a flow that, like, regardless of the specific elements, Matthew, is there a flow, like a yeah, an emotional mood or a kind of dynamic that you hope people generally experience? Like, a, is there kind of an arc? Or yeah, I wouldn't, I, I, th- I wouldn't want to universalize it, but I think generally speaking, um, it's a good idea to be, be quickly oriented reoriented into kind of a kingdom of God mentality. We, we go through our whole week and we're, n- we're nothing in the world is trying to point our affections or our vision to Christ. So very quickly, a great way to do that is to just sing a, a song about how great Jesus is. So we'll oftentimes start with usually a fairly upbeat song, although not always, but something that's designed to hopefully like grab our affections and remind us, Oh, Hey, we're on this path together. Um, then there's, there's usually uh, something that reminds us that we're a community. We're not just by ourselves, but we're in this together. Oftentimes that's through kind of like reminding about through announcements and a welcome, what the church is doing, what kind of bigger than beyond, beyond the Sunday moment. Uh, then the scriptures, teaching the scriptures um, is, is our instruction, our invitation. And it's not, it's not just a dissemination of knowledge, but it's an invitation to, to join with the people of God uh, across history and across the globe in following Jesus. Um, and then we have communion, which is kind of this embodied experience of, uh, of what we hopefully just heard through the message, which is some form of the gospel, which tells us who we are. Um, and then we t- 
typically will end with songs as well, giving us an opportunity to respond. Um, and we could talk a lot more about this, but there's like praise songs and worship songs. Worship tends to be a little bit more like, Lord, I, I want to surrender something to you. I want to repent and move. And, and so we try to put those songs more toward the end of the service where we can make commitments and ask for the Lord's help. Um, so that's, that's kind of generally a, a, yeah. the liturgy flow of us here. So. Well, and I think it's worth saying, like, we do what we do largely because it's what we've done and it's shaped by the environments we came out of. You know, I was asked recently, uh, hey, how come you don't do altar calls? And my main reason was, well, I've never really been part of a tradition where that was a normal thing. And so it just feels weird to me. So I would say yeah. even like, I mean, we have some some convictional instincts and things related to this question, but I would also just hesitate to say like, hey, the, this is really shaped by how we view this or this or this. I mean, there's just a practical dynamic even of like time, (laughs) you know, like some people go, hey, let's just have this go forever. Well, those are people that are not serving in the nursery, right? Like like a couple months ago, we were short of volunteers and I was with the, you know, like just beginning to walk walkers at the 4 p.m. service, you know, because I wasn't preaching that day. And I tell you what, I'm committed to not preaching long anymore because like that was brutal, like, especially the last 15 minutes, those kids were done, you know? So are you saying I preached too long that day? Uh, no, (laughs) no, but I was sure praying that you wouldn't (laughs) preach too long that day, you know? Um, and so, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's Bible and conviction informing it. There's also just what we're all familiar with. Yeah. Cool. Um, last question. Oh, last one. Here we go. Last one. Yeah. So this is a great question. What is the direction pastor Luke and the elders, um, we're all elders, by the way, so we can answer this question. See our youth group going. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I love that. Um, we've had transition in this last year, um, in the last number of months, um, where we have uh, really totally different leadership in there. Uh, Josh Yasuda is the, the pastor right now. Um, we're probably, in the next six months, uh, God willing, going to hire another pastor to be in that environment. An additional pastor? An additional pastor, yeah. Not a replacement for Yasuda. Yasuda's doing awesome, and we're we're thankful for his leadership there. You know, the, the core of that ministry is the relationships, and especially relationships with um, kids, students, and their mentors. So um, people may or may not know that part of the vision we cast is for mentors to really seriously consider starting with students in sixth grade and advancing with them over the course of seven years till they graduate. Now that can't always happen, but I've really frankly been stunned how much it has happened. Yeah. Um, and some of those mentors actually have finished that and gone back to the beginning and they're starting over. And so, um, that's an incredible thing. And, you know, so when we talk about the vision of the ministry, like, I mean, you could talk about that in terms of like real specific, like you go, okay, on one, we want to, help kids have fun. We want to expose them to the gospel. We want to teach them about Jesus. We want to, you know, see their, you know, early faith grow and develop. That's one thing. Uh, Or you can talk about vision and going like, we'd like their mentors to be invited to their wedding, Mm. you know, and it really is more probably that second kind of thing of we're trying to make these long-term investments in students where they, where we really know them, we really love them. And there's a relational dynamic where they can repeatedly and continually, and hopefully even, beyond high school, um, have a relationship with these folks where they get re-centered on Jesus. So that that's our heart. Um, that really hasn't changed, even with the leadership change. Um, and that's partly why we were so excited to bring Yasuda into that role is because he embodied and believed in that vision. So yeah, that's, that's the heart for it. Um, I've got two kids in the ministry now, one in high school, one in junior high. I've got two more that are coming up. And um, I'm sure that things will, you know, on the margins, tweak and change and adjust over the over a period of time, but I, I really hope for Hank and Mary that they have a similar kind of, you know, in terms of the substance of the ministry, I hope they have a really similar kind of experience as uh, what my older two have had. So would you add anything to that elders? I I would, I mean, I totally agree with all that. I would add uh, one of the things that's made our ministry so great, I think for so long is it's just very welcoming to students. Like students feel like they can come and be safe there and not, they're not going to get like, pushed on a bunch in, in unhelpful ways. Um, so I feel like building on that foundation, one of the, I have two daughters that uh, lead worship occasionally in student ministries, building on that foundation. One of the things we've been praying toward is just how do we raise the spiritual temperature 
in that room when they all gather together, um, particularly during worship. But um, it feels like there's, uh, there's, there's opportunity there. So uh, all my kids go to camp and they always come back from camp and say, it was amazing. The worship was so great. Everybody was really engaged and and the Lord really moved. And it, it feels a little, it it doesn't feel like there's quite that much energy on a typical Wednesday. And so one of the things we've been praying for is just how, how could we lift, of the affections of folks that are there um, on a weekly basis. Yeah, that's great. And would you add anything, Seth? I hope that a lot of people who have never served in students get the chance to serve in students. Hmm. I think my wife's a mentor, and I just got back from middle school camp where I hung out with the mentors, and I think that if people want to grow in their faith, like there's this guy, like I was like not to dig on Jared Thornburg, but he's young, and he's a great guy, and he's going to really love his kids well. And he's also paired with some super dope guys, and they're, I think, late 30s, early 40s. And so he's going to have the chance to grow a ton. Yeah. And so... As he pours in the kids, as he pours as he's in the invested kids, in by other adults. He's going to be next yeah. to these guys who have kids of their own and have been married, and he's engaged, you know. Yeah. And so, so the opportunity to serve. Also just seeing how many uh, mentors, like, like Dan Toth, just won his fifth team <laughs> competition in a row. Wow. And <laughs> so he won him, four man. years in a row in high school. Now he's won in middle school. He's re-upped, you know. And uh-huh. it's like anything that you get good at stuff that you work at. <laughs> and he's in there pouring his heart and soul in this. Yeah. And he's, it's not like he's bored. Nope. He loves the kids and he's investing it. And getting to see the, the costly investment of mentors is growing for my faith. And so even like my wife, she loves this church, obviously, uh, for a long time. And then she signed up to serve as a mentor and her affection for the church went way up because she saw all these great people pouring into students. And so I think if you want to grow in your faith, you should serve in students as a mentor. And if you want to um, give away the faith and rather than kind of pounding your fists and being mad at where the culture's headed, it's like how about you serve in students and make a difference? Yeah. And I think there's just a really, I would love it if more and more people served in our next gen ministries, kids and students, because I think a lot of adults think what they need to grow is information and classes and education. And at a certain point, that's true. But after about two or three years of that, you grow by giving it away and serving and carrying responsibility. That reading another systematic theology book or even a systematic theology book for the first time may, I don't think will do half of what serving the lives of next generation will do for your own growth. Very good. So good. So Matthew, is that it? That's it. Thanks, guys. Well, man, thank fun. you. Uh, thanks for coming. Yeah. Thanks for your questions and your contribution to yeah. the conversation. It's always and, a pleasure. Uh, yeah. So thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back, God willing, in a few weeks. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Hey.